Welcome once again to Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOMLP, Chapel Hill and Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 13 years at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio in Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio in Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio in Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRISEM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRISEM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRISEM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. And finally, Radio in Vivo is underwritten by Gene-Centric Therapeutics, Incorporated of Research Triangle Park. Gene-Centric is pioneering the advanced classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the Cancer Subtype Platform. More information is available at genecentric.com. WCOM and Radio in Vivo thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. Well, sometimes we think we know everything there is to know. But just when you have that feeling, along comes something brand new and amazing. The recent discovery of a previously unknown sixth finger possessed by the I.I. lemur is a perfect example, and we have the scientist who made that remarkable finding here on Radio and Vivo today. He's going to tell us all about his research in the fields known as functional morphology and comparative anatomy also. Adam Hartstone-Rose is an associate professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at NC State University, where he has been on the faculty, faculty since 2017. He has previously held academic appointments at Penn State University and the University of South Carolina. He received his B.A. in Biological Anthropology and Anatomy from Duke University in 2003. 
and his Ph.D. in those same specialties from Duke in 2008. Dr. Adam Hartstone-Rose, welcome to Radio In Vivo. Thank you for having me. To get us started, uh, Adam, let's begin with the breaking news from your group. Tell us more about your discovery of this so-called pseudo-thumb in the I.I. lemur. How did you accomplish that? Well, my lab has been studying primate anatomy for quite some time. It's one of the main things that we study. And over the last several years, we've dissected about 200 different primate specimens, everything from silverback gorillas to um, pygmy marmosets and mouse lemurs, so the largest primates and the smallest primates and everything in between. And um, for and one of the things that we've been studying is the anatomy of the forearms of primates. And forearms are really interesting because that is where most of the power that you get uh, for your fingers, for the movement of your fingers, actually is produced by muscles in the forearms. And so whenever you're typing on the keyboard, mostly what you're using are muscles that are in your forearms and not in your hands. And so we've been studying how these muscles are adapted for different types of postures. So for instance, is a primate um, a vertical type of primate, or does it walk on all fours? And then also how these muscles relate to whether they are arboreal or terrestrial. So do the primates live in the trees or on the ground? Mm -hmm. And um, we have for a long time wanted to study the weirdest primate in the world. And so the I.I. is definitely the strangest in its anatomy. And they have crazy hands. Um, and given that those hands are functionally powered by these forearm muscles that we know so well, um, we waited very patiently for quite a long time to get a, an I.I. specimen. There are only about two dozen I.I.s in captivity in the United States. And, of course, we would never... Um, have an animal killed for our research. So we had to wait for one to um, die of natural causes. And finally, um, we were able to get an amazing specimen. And we were doing a very careful dissection of its forearms. And one of the muscles started uh, going to a place that was rather unexpected. Um, one, so there's you have, you have a whole bunch of muscles. In fact, there are um, something like 14 to 17 different muscles in your forearm, long, skinny muscles. And one of the muscles that fires your thumb and allows you to what's called abduct, so abduct your thumb. It's the muscle you use if you're hitchhiking. <laughs> um, so that muscle, it sends its tendon from the forearm into the base of the thumb. And in you and me, it just has this one tendon, and it just does that one thing. Mm -hmm. In the eye eye, that tendon split. And, and, and part of it went to the thumb, but part of it went around to this weird little wrist structure. And as we continued studying that wrist structure, we realized that the tendon was attaching to a muscle. I'm sorry, the, it was attaching to a bone. And that bone had a cartilaginous extension on it. And those two um, components, the bone and the cartilage, had two additional muscles that attached to it as well. So three muscles total that could move this structure in three different directions. And when we started looking more closely, so we were really like under the skin and studying this anatomy. When we looked at the other side, we realized that this structure, not only was it bilaterally symmetrical, so obviously it had it on its left and right hand, but we had completely 
missed the fact that this structure even has its own fingerprint. And so, wow, okay. yeah, so it's, <laughs> it's a real thing. And we were able to study um, the way that this, this structure uh, could move. And basically, um, the, it has bone cartilage, muscular control, connective tissue. Um, and we realized that we had essentially found a, an accessory digit, a sixth finger that had never been recognized on this very weird animal. There must have been a real eureka moment at that, at some point there, right? Yeah, you know, I think that honestly I was surprised that I didn't know about it before. I was sure that somebody had written about it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an amazing um, description of II anatomy from even from the 19th century. Back before we really understood what an II was, there was some debate about whether it was a primate or a squirrel. So, I mean, these are really strange animals. And, yeah. um, I, and so that was a detailed um, piece of dissection and skeletal description. There have been a few of my colleagues who have studied the function of the their fingers. So they have very strange fingers that they use in a very specific type of behavior. And so that's been exhaustively studied. And I was really sure that somebody had described this anatomy before. And and so we went to the literature and we couldn't find anything. And um, we decided to really document it carefully. And, uh, of course, our paper was reviewed by a number of of our colleagues, real experts in in the field. And they were as excited about it as we were. And and thus far, nobody has, I keep thinking that somebody's going to point to some paper from 1942 where this was described. (laughs) But thus far, it seems like it's a completely um, novel recognition of this structure. Uh, That that is amazing. Uh, And what a reward for for all your hard work and dedication. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, You mentioned that I consider myself a comparative anatomist. And um, throughout my career as an anatomist, people often say to me, well, don't we already know the stuff? Isn't, isn't anatomy mm-hmm. known? <laughs> what is it that you can spend a career? Like you're, it's not like you're going to discover a new spleen or something like that. And, <laughs> right. and the truth is that I, I then explain what a comparative anatomist is and a functional morphologist, and I never really imagined that I would be discovering previously unrecognized structures. So it's been, it's been quite a, an exciting time. Absolutely. Well, um, Adam, is, is this pseudo, so-called pseudo-thumb, yeah. uh, is it used in the same way that we fellow primates use our thumbs? That's a really good question. Um, and in fact, one of our next studies is to really study how, how IIs use this um, in their behavior. So, so you can see this in living animals. Yeah, we can see it in living animals. Um, it's a challenge to see it in, in living IIs because... First of all, IIs are nocturnal. They're the largest nocturnal primate. And so when an II is active, it's active in the dark. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that makes it hard to see anything that they're doing. And at places that have IIs, IIs are really kind of particular animals, and they, they get stressed out. And um, so places like the Duke Lemur Center that has probably the largest colony of living IIs anywhere in the world – um, they don't let us turn on the lights when we want to study the eyes, <laughs> right. and so um, so night vision exactly. Right? So or we have to use um, like red lights at very low levels and try to observe it. It's also really hard to observe the function of a structure um, from its underside, right? So when an eye is for instance walking around, it's walking on this structure. So if you think about trying to observe how exactly is the ball of your foot 
interacting with the ground. It's not a trivial thing to try to think about how you would study that. Yeah. Um, and then also in the in the study that we published, we really went very heavily into documenting the anatomy. So we ult- ultimately ended up studying this in um, seven different specimens of an II, um, including a, uh, a relatively young animal, some animals from the museum in Paris, and then several from the lemur center. Um, but they were all dead. And so uh, we haven't yet. So one of the next pieces of, of study is going to be to really do careful observations of the, anim- the the living animal behavior using this structure. Would you have the opportunity at that point to, uh, like, take x-rays and things like that? So we can do x-rays. What we're really keen on doing, um, if, if we can figure out a way, is we'd like to use um, pressure pads. Um, so it's a challenge. Um, I guess now a lot of people are familiar with, with foot pressure pads because at some drugstores you can kind of do a test. You take off your shoe and you step in. It'll tell you what kind of um, inserts you want to put in your in your shoes to help your feet. Um, if we can find a way to use this same technology but at the level of precision that we would need for something with a little itty-bitty structure. So the pseudothumb on the eye, the pad of the pseudothumb, is less than a square centimeter. And so to really understand the um, with the force vectors that it's using and the amount of force that it's using, mm-hmm. it needs to be a lot more sensitive than that kind of drugstore version. Sure. Um, so really so what? Do, although it's it's obviously quite challenging to to answer that question that I posed to you. What's your thinking? I mean, you must have uh, some pretty good ideas. Yeah, there. we do. We do have uh, some specific ideas about. So one of the beautiful things about studying functional morphology is it's really so. So that is the um, study of how anatomy functions. So how, how the, the, the structures of the body allow for specific types of behavior. And we can look at the orientations of bones and cartilage and muscle in this case, and we can deduce what it is that those muscles do. For instance, muscles only ever pull. You, a muscle cannot extend. All it can do is contract and if you need to extend, then you have to have another muscle to extend in the other dir- to pull in the other direction, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so, if you know where a muscle is attaching, then you can know what that muscle is doing. And so, we know that the, that the eye is pseudothumb can have various things that are very much akin to grasping. Um, and uh, and so we kind of think of this as a palmer grasp. So it's not exactly like you would curl your fingers around something, but it's more like if you imagine kind of holding a ping pong ball in the palm of your hand without curling your fingers around it. Um, and we think that that's what the eye is capable of doing with greater precision than we can do because it has this extra structure. And so we think that it's, it could have a role in grasping, for instance, small objects. We think that it could also have a role pr- potentially in locomotion, so helping like stabilize the animal on a branch. And we think that this really evolved because um, the eye's other fingers are so specialized in doing something else and they're no longer really good at grasping. So they have these long, very long spindly fingers that they use for this specific foraging behavior. Um, And they're so adept at that, Mm -hmm. that we think that they're not really good enough for helping stabilize the eye during locomotion or grabbing small objects. So what, what do the, the other fingers, I guess, specifically the middle finger, which is quite bizarre looking uh, what what is what is that all about how how is that uh, contributing to their feeding yeah the eye's middle finger is a very specialized organ 
it is very long. So if the II if the II's arm was the size of your arm, then its fing- its middle finger would be about a foot long. Wow. So that so yeah, it's it's kind of like you could think of it as almost four times longer than it should be given the size of the animal. Um and not only is it very long, but it's super spindly. It's it's almost like this like very thin needle-like structure. Um, and what's very cool to us anatomists is that the it has a joint in the middle of it that is a ball and socket joint. So your fingers have, um, our fingers have hinge joints. So they mm-hmm. basically move in this one plane. The eye-eye's um, middle finger has a joint that's more like our shoulder joint in the middle. And it uses this crazy spindly um, third middle, third finger, this middle finger, for um, a behavior called tap foraging. And it needs to use other very specialized organs to help with this tap foraging. So for instance, the eye eyes have these huge ears, very bat-like ears, and they have the largest brains of any primates. And they have ever-growing incisors. They're the only primate that has ever-growing teeth. And it uses this suite of anatomy to do this tap foraging behavior. And what it does is it takes that middle finger and it taps on rotting wood. And that finger can tap multiple times a second. So I've seen some reports of seven or eight times per second. It's drumming on the wood. And then it uses that, that large brain and those huge ears to essentially echolocate spaces under the surface of the wood. And it can create a mental map of grooves that are carved by bugs, by grubs. Mm -hmm. And so the grubs bore into there and the II creates this mental map and then it uses those ever-growing incisors to chew a hole at an intersection of the pathway. So it's not just digging into like specific spaces, it's choosing the most efficient route and it'll choose, choose um, so it'll dig a hole using these teeth and then it'll stick that creepy middle finger into the hole and it can basically um, ferret out all of the grubs through the different pathways because of that amazing flexibility. Yeah. And then it grabs them with this needle-like claw and pulls them out of the hole. And so it eats insects as a large part of its diet. It also uses those teeth for um, eating very hard nuts. So an eye can get into a coconut with no problems. It does crazy other things too. So if you want a, um, a real kick, uh, look up videos of IIs eating eggs. So an II will grab like a chicken egg. Well, not in Madagascar, but in the lemur center, mm-hmm. they'll be fed an egg and they will kind of tap around and they will bite at the end, one end of the egg, make a perfect little hole. And then it sticks that crazy finger into the hole and it slurps up the, the egg, um, oh, wow. with that middle finger. Yeah. Nice. It's really amazing. Well, this is uh, really a great example of evolution in action, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is really remarkable. As as a comparative anatomist, sometimes it's frustrating that there aren't really good analogs to the II. There aren't. There's really nothing else, especially in the primate world, that's remotely like an II. Mm-hmm. But it is a wonderful even, example. Even other lemurs? So, yeah, IIs are, are um, the, we think at this point that they're the first branch off of the lemur lineage. So all other lemurs are closer related to each other than any is to the II. Um, yeah, and so none of them, no, no other primate can do this kind of echolocation. No other primate has these um, amazing ever-growing teeth. No other primate has hands that are remotely similar to that. There's one kind of possum. I think in New Guinea, Papua New Guinea or New Guinea, that has 
um, these crazy long fingers and can do some similar types of foraging to eye eyes. But really, there aren't very many things that are that are like an eye eye. Um, and so we, we're forced to look far and wide for similar animals. So in some respects, an eye eye kind of fills a niche in Madagascar that would be filled by a squirrel in most other places. Mm-hmm. So the way that they're kind of seed predators, that's very squirrel-like. And of course, their teeth are very rodent-like. Um, but the tap foraging and the hunting for grubs, that in a lot of respects is more like a woodpecker. And so Madagascar is lacking yeah. woodpeckers, Madagascar is lacking squirrels. And so the eye kind of has evolved to fill those types of niches. So is the, is the genetic isolation, uh, of the Madagascar bioecology, is that at play here? Yeah, for sure. So Madagascar is a biological arc out in the Indian Ocean. It's very similar to how special um, Australia is, right? And so Australia has all of these amazing animals that you find nowhere else. Um, and if you're interested in marsupials, then Australia is like the, the fantasy place. For those of us that are interested in primates and primate diversification, Madagascar is the equivalent. So you can think about the Madagascar as this place where um, the proto-lemur found its way to and then um, diversified into this all of these amazing environments. So Madagascar is huge. It's about, I think that somebody said it was about five times the size of North Carolina. Wow. Um, and mm-hmm. so it has a lot of environmental diversity, just like North Carolina has um, diversity um, in its environments. Madagascar is a big place where there are a lot of environments and, th- and lemurs have found their way into important roles in each of those environments. And- Adam, have you been studying lemurs for for a long time? And uh, I, I understand that you have been. But what what initially attracted your interest in them? I have been studying lemurs since I was a teenager. So more than half of my life, I've been studying lemurs. Um, I was initially attracted to lemurs. Well, I was. I think I was like a lot of primatologists. I was attracted to primates because of what they can tell us about ourselves. So we are primates. And primates, therefore, kind of have a special place in in biology and in in our own curiosity. Um, of course, when I was growing up, I learned um, the stories of Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey, and um, and apes are are really mesmerizing animals. Um, but as I began studying primates more. Um, as as a child, really, I realized that if I wanted to be a scientist and I wanted to make an impact on primatology, then maybe I should um, start to specialize in animals for which um, there's much less known. And when I was a child, there were still species of lemurs that were newly discovered, like large lemurs. So like, for instance, there's an amazing lemur called the golden bamboo lemur that was discovered in, I think it was 1986, a whole new species. Um, There were some Mm -hmm. species of lemurs. The greater bamboo lemur was was thought to be extinct, and it was rediscovered as alive. And even in the last 15, 20 years, um, we've realized that what we used to think of, uh, we used to think there were 30, 35 species of lemurs. Now that we're doing genetic tests and looking a little bit more closely, we now think that there are over 100 species of lemurs. And is so that this right? is, yeah, wow. so this is a realm of science that there's still a lot to be known. Um, and 
also they're amazing animals. They're wonderful animals. They're um, they're very charismatic. They're adorable. Some species they always look like they're surprised, <laughs> so they're, they're a little <laughs> bit bug eyed. Um, some of they have very complicated behavior, um, and that that kind of niche partitioning. So the di- diversity of lemurs is really appealing to those of us that are interested in evolutionary biology. Yeah, absolutely. So have you had the opportunity to? Spend much time uh, out in the field in Madagascar and yeah. see them up close and personal uh, yeah. outside been, of the Lemur Center. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the Lemur Center is a very special place, and I used to work there when I was um, a student at Duke. Um, but even before I went to Duke, I started going to Madagascar. And I've been to Madagascar maybe a dozen times. The first time I was 16 years old. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. And I went all over the island, um, and I saw, I've seen um, dozens of species of lemurs in the wild, and I've visited all of sort of the most important national parks. And even, unfortunately, during my lifetime, Madagascar has changed a lot. Um, and so I've seen Madagascar um, back when there was still like a lot of frontier and things that we didn't know about these large animals, the, the existence of. And then uh, I've seen more recently as Madagascar is becoming um, more developed and um, and overdeveloped in some ways. Um, but it's an amazing place. It's kind of, uh, I think that it's, if, if Dr. Seuss became more interested in primates, he would, he would have, uh, invented a lot of what you can find in Madagascar. That sounds great. So you go back regularly then? Yeah, I haven't been back for a few years, but since this paper became, um, so widely publicized and everybody's been talking to me about lemurs, it's been making me want to, um, visit. Mm-hmm. Um, the last time I was there, I think was in 2012, and I took some of my undergraduates with me, and, um, we actually dissected an II on that trip as well. Um, and, What's remarkable is so we, we were really studying their masticatory muscles, so the muscles that they use for feeding. Mm-hmm. And um, we also collected some forearm data, but I didn't recognize the, the pseudothumb. And what's crazy is that Even I actually – was right there staring right you right the there, face. and I went back, <laughs> and, I, and I found the photographs that we took documenting our, our anatomy. Yeah. And you can see it in the, in the photographs from oh, back wow. then. But <laughs> I, I just overlooked it, as have you know, generations of scientists as well. That that's a great story. Yeah, <laughs> kind of embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, it, so much uh, scientific discovery is is like that. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. It's, I mean, these things. It's I didn't kind of beat you over the head at some point. Right? Exactly. <laughs> I didn't invent this structure. It's been there the whole time. Yeah. Um, well, Adam, uh, tell us. A, you, we've talked a little bit about the Duke Lemur Center, but I'd like to hear more about your relationship uh, with that uh, amazing. Uh, research resource, uh, which goes back quite a ways. Yeah. Uh, the first time I was in Madagascar, I was 16 years old. So I was a junior in high school. And um, I had kind of talked my way into a research group. And um, one of the first people that I met was a Duke alum. And he told me, one of the first things that he told me was that I should go to college at Duke. And having grown up in New York City, I had never, I'm not even sure that I had really heard of Duke. Um, What's a Duke? What's a Duke? I wasn't really a basketball (laughs) fan back then. Okay, Um, okay. (laughs) And so uh, I didn't really know what he was talking about. But he basically told me that if if you want to study lemurs, Duke is the place to go. And, um, and of course, as I looked into it, um, I, I visited Duke. I don't think that that might have been my first trip south of the Mason-Dixon line. Wow. And mm-hmm. uh, I visited the Lemur Center, and it's truly a, a magical place. Um, 
and uh, and I kind of fell in love. And while I was an undergrad, I worked there. In fact, if you ever so the the lemur center has um, the largest collection of captive lemurs anywhere in the world, maybe the largest collection of endangered primates anywhere in the world. I think there are over 200 now. Um, at one point, there were maybe more than 700. So they've been changing the way they manage the collection. Mm-hmm. But um, in addition to this living collection of animals, they also have what they call the division of fossil primates, where they have fossils of carnivore, uh, sorry, not carnivores, of primates going back in some cases, tens of millions of years. Um, so back to um, Egypt when there were um, early primates there, and then they also have ancient lemur fossils. And some of the ancient lemurs were really amazing animals as well. Um, and as an undergraduate, I worked there, and I put together wow. skeletons. And now, did all of these fossilized lemurs emerge from Madagascar? Yeah. So, the, so unfortunately, about a third of the genera of lemurs have gone extinct Mm -hmm. since humans arrived in Madagascar. So the first wave of humans arrived in Madagascar really recently, only a couple thousand years ago, maybe 1500 years ago. Hmm. Some people think perhaps earlier, but it's only, it's been relatively recent and the, and they had a devastating effect on the island and all of the largest species of lemurs were exterminated. So there were some kinds of lemurs that were the size of, um, even up to the size of like a female gorilla. So quite large in some cases, yeah, about the size of Mm. us. Um, And there were amazing animals. So there was a whole lineage of lemurs called sloth lemurs that suspended, that were suspensory just like sloths. So hung under branches and had curved fingers and, and hips that were reoriented for this type of thing. There were lemurs that were called koala lemurs that had giant hands and really strange big faces and maybe maybe even like kind of um, snouts, like prehensile trunk type things. Um, and yeah, there were, there were these amazing pieces of um, biodiversity that were there that we know about now from their fossil record. In fact, it's a sub-fossil record. So they, they went extinct so recently that the bones aren't fully um, fossilized. Wow. So yeah, and we can study. There, there are so many. Were, were they hunted by the, the uh, humans? Yeah, we're pretty sure that they were. And in fact, mm-hmm. we find some of their bones with cut marks. Um, one of my favorite papers um, was written by one of my old mentors, uh, a professor named Elwin Simons. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. But he wrote a paper um, about uh, where some Malagasy people have described the sounds of some mysterious animals. And he thinks that they were the sounds of the, there was an extinct type of hippo that was there. And then he also thinks that one of the sounds that they described was an extinct type of lemur. And so there's still potentially a cultural heritage, um, a cultural memory of the existence of these animals. Wow. How how endangered are they uh, in the, in the current day? They're extremely endangered. In fact, I think that um, the lemurs are considered the most endangered primates in the world. Uh, Some of them exist at very, very small numbers. So that golden bamboo lemur and the greater bamboo lemur, there might be only 500 or 1,000 of them left on the face of the earth. Um, And there are none of them in captivity in the United States. Um, And uh, some other species are even more endangered. And it's really a shame because um, 
Madagascar is is a wonderful place, but it's also a very poor place. And so it's usually on many of the lists of the top five or top ten poorest countries in the world. And they have amazing resources. So they have um, beautiful forest woods. They have amazing um, uh, geological resources as well. So I think a huge percentage of the sapphires that are mined in the world come from Madagascar. And this means that a lot of um, foreign countries have been quite predatory. Um, and so, for instance, the Chinese are really, really hurting Madagascar. And um, even some of the national parks are being devastated by, um, by logging or by gem and mineral extraction. Um, and the lemurs are, are very much suffering. Um, they are... Uh, habitat loss is the biggest danger for them, as it is for most animals in the yeah, world. Sure. But they're also um, being hunted to some extent. So the lemurs that exist now have really been protected by um, cultural taboos against eating them. But these taboos are very local. And one thing that happens when you have um, logging or mineral extraction is that people move to go to the, these new areas. And when they move to new areas, then their local taboos um, might not protect those animals. And so the animals are hunted as well. So is, is there governmental conservation efforts underway? Yeah. Or, and there are NGO efforts? Yeah, there's both. So there are wonderful parks in Madagascar, beautiful parks, and um, the people who are fighting to protect the lemurs are, are some amazing ranger-type people. Mm-hmm. Um, there are NGOs. There are, um, there's a lot of work by the World Wildlife Fund, um, Conservation International. Madagascar is one of the main fo- focuses of Conservation International. Um, the French are still relatively involved, so Madagascar was a French colony, and so there are some French NGOs. But the task is daunting. Um, it's a very, very poor place. The population has doubled in the last couple decades. And so, wow. um, and then of course the globalization really hits hard. Um, you know, it has wonderful benefits for, for many economies, but it also has kind of a land grab type effect early on. And Madagascar, I think is still in that phase where, um, it's in more danger from globalization and is not benefiting as much as it could be. You are listening to Radio In Vivo, and joining me today is NC State Biology Professor Dr. Adam Hartstone Rose. Adam, let's let's leave the lemurs behind for a few minutes uh, and dive into your other work, which is just as interesting and important. Uh, first of all, we need some definitions and explanations. Tell us about functional morphology and comparative anatomy. Okay. Comparative anatomy. Briefly. <laughs> yeah, briefly. So comparative anatomy, as the name suggests, is where we basically look at how bodies are put together from different species. And functional morphology is, is looking at um, how those different pieces of the body work. And so I often kind of summarize um, my research as I, I, I tell people that I study how animals do what they do. And to some extent, I study this with people, but people are, are we, we are a really weird species and, um, you know, this kind of walking around on two feet. And that means our hands are strange, our heads are strange because of how brainy we are. And so um, we are but one species in our sample. Um, I'm really more interested in looking across species um, and trying to see how um, our anatomy 
functions and allows us to do different things like walking, climbing, manipulating things. And I'm especially interested in feeding morphology. So how um, our jaws and teeth and our, especially our muscles function to be able to allow the consumption of different types of diets. I see. And that, that holds true for many other species as well. Yeah. I mean, so there are lots of other animals that you've studied in addition to lemurs. Right? Yeah. So our lab, we, we focus um, quite extensively on primates and also carnivores. Um, carnivores are a really interesting lineage. Um, they also have a lot of diversity uh, um, and a lot of interesting radiation. And, uh, and yet in some ways they're rather simplified. So the, carn- the the primate feeding apparatus is really complicated because we don't just move our jaws up and down, but we can kind of swivel our jaws around and poke them out and pull them in. Um, and that means that our muscles are really weird. And the way that our teeth come together, they have to meet up in different planes and different vectors. Mm-hmm. Um Whereas primates, most primates have a very restricted jaw, and it kind of just processes its food like a pair of scissors. And um, and so, if you're if you're interested in trying to study the evolution of a system, it's nice to work in a simplified system. And so that's why we focus. So we do a lot of dissection of lions and tigers and bears and all <laughs> sorts of other prim- uh, carnivores as well. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. Uh, well, tell us about some of the. Uh, innovative tools and methods that you use in your functional morphology studies. I'm I'm talking about digital dissection uh, specifically. Yeah. Um, I really love doing functional morphology study using the tools. So in a lot of respects, um, our tools haven't changed in a couple hundred years. So a lot of what I study, I can study the exact same way that the first comparative anatomists in Paris in the 18th and 19th century were doing it, where you get a specimen and you do careful observation. I love to draw anatomy and and really study the trajectories of muscle tendons, etc. And we can use simple things like calipers. So just how do you measure the, compare the lengths of bones, for instance, mm-hmm. um, using something that's not much more elaborate than a ruler. However, there are some new technologies that are allowing us to study anatomy more elaborately and in ways that we never could have imagined, revealing details that we never could have imagined before. So, for instance, in the II research, we have, we've done a lot of what we call digital dissection, where we can take a specimen and use various types of scanning. Um, so, for instance, we can use MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, or CT scanning, computer tomography, um, where we can actually visualize structures in three-dimensional space. And this has really revolutionized um, the, the study of functional morphology because we no longer have to destroy a specimen as we're really kind of peeling it apart to look deeper into it. We can do all of this stuff in digital space and study the relationship of structures in three dimensions. And so that's allowed us to visualize this, um, for instance, this pseudothumb um, and see all of the structures that come together to um, make it work. And that allows you to, uh, as it were, uh, refine the the digital models that are being made. Uh, with I'm quoting you here, <laughs> not very well, but uh, uh, with more accurate representation of contractile forces and vectors. Exactly. So you're able to figure out how how these things are working, as well as 
just the three-dimensional structures. Yeah, that's really correct. So, the for instance, in the masticatory apparatus, so in our jaws, what we've done for many years, for decades, is we take off the muscles and we, we're able to deduce how much force the muscle can produce. And based on you know, the, where the muscle attaches, we can kind of figure out the angles that that muscle is, you know, each muscle is pulling at. However, by removing them from, from the specimen, by taking the muscles away from the skull, um, we are losing a lot of information at that fine level of how each muscle fascicle, so the little bundles of muscle fibers, how each one of those pulls. And each one pulls in a slightly different direction with a different amount of force. Um, and now that we can do all of this in digital space, we can reconstruct this and spin it around in space, and we can remove select elements and add them back and study the trajectory of each of these pieces of fiber. And we're, we're learning much more than than we knew about the composition of muscles previously. So you're actually using the technology that has been really developed in in medicine. Yeah, very much so. Um, There's not enough money in comparative anatomy to develop an MRI. Um, We'll see what we can do. (laughs) Yeah, maybe maybe the publicity from the RII paper. There you go. No, of course, all of this kind of visualization has um, enormous um, potential for um, helping in medicine and has been developed for medicine. Um, And in fact, some of our techniques have medical implications as well. For instance, the way that we select um, pieces of muscles and go through and study their functional morphology, um, these types of of selections might have applicability for the way that we can examine tumors, for instance, in different types of three-dimensional scans. and the technology isn't fully refined for what we want to do, and the technology isn't 100% where it could be for um, for studying tumors in relation to other structures. Um, and so even though I'm really fundamentally interested in how these animals evolved in the shapes that they are, mm-hmm. um, the, you know, there is applicability beyond that. There, there is some translational aspect then. Of course, of yeah. course. I don't know if um, studying the sixth finger of an eye eye is going to revolutionize the world. but well. <laughs> <laughs> To a great extent, actually, so the students who are helping me with this research um, – are really interested in a lot of um, that kind of health aspect. So I teach a lot of pre-medical students. I've taught a lot of medical students and physician assistant students. And um, in fact, um, one of the co-authors on the II pseudothumb paper is currently um, a medical student, and she's training to become uh, an orthopedic surgeon. And she's really interested in forearms and hands, um, and she is the best um, anatomist that um, I've ever worked with, and so she's going to be a wonderful reconstructive surgeon. Hopefully, she doesn't start adding sixth fingers to her <laughs> patients. Well, I hope she gets to hear this and hear hear your shout out. Yes, I'll definitely. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll definitely have to send and her. What, the list. What's her name? So that, uh, that's Marissa Betcher. So she was an undergraduate of mine. Um, for many years, and she was so wonderful and passionate about doing this research that um, I actually hired her to become my lab manager. Um, and um, unfortunately, I wrote a really good recommendation for her, and she left my lab, and it's never been the same since. <laughs> uh, well, Adam, I'd also like to hear more about your paleontology, paleontological work, uh, studying the anatomies of fossilized creatures. Uh, which you touched on briefly with the lemurs. Uh, For example, you've had the honor of actually naming two extinct species. Tell us about that. 
When I was a graduate student, I started working with a professor at Duke, um, Stephen Churchill, who is a paleoanthropologist who does a lot of work in South Africa. Um, and Steve has been one of the co-authors on describing the two newest species of ancient hominids, so Homo naledi, and before that Australopithecus sediba. And I used to go with him and help supervise the students and help um, conduct a lot of the excavations. And one of the things that I became really interested in um, is the ecology that surrounded our ancient ancestors. And I was really interested especially in the carnivore guild. So there was an idea that humans became so brainy. Like I was saying, we're these weird brainy species. And one of the ideas is that we, be, we our brains were able to get so big because we started to be able to scavenge from carnivore kills and extract higher quality resources. Um, for instance, bone marrow um, or scraps of muscles. All of those are energetically more valuable than different types of plant material. So, um, for instance, you know, a lot of what chimpanzees eat is lower quality than, for instance, the monkeys that they hunt. And so the idea is that those were valuable resources. And for my dissertation, I, was, I studied whether the carnivores that lived during our evolution, the extinct carnivores, whether they were producing the types of scavengeable remains that would have led to that being a viable ecological niche. And in the process of that, so again, I was really interested in the functional morphology and the comparative anatomy and ecological reconstruction. Um, but unfortunately, when you're a paleontologist, a lot of the time you have to just figure out what is it that you're looking at before you can figure out how does it work. Sure. And um, we had come across a couple species of carnivores that really needed that kind of preliminary description. The first one that we described um, was an extinct, um, the, it turns out it was the ancestor of the African hunting dog. So a really amazing animal, also very, very endangered, that lives in South Africa, Southern Africa. Um, and, um, and we found its kind of rough and tough ancestor. Well, that was a very exciting study. I did that when I was a graduate student. And then a few years later, when we started finding these amazing uh, Australopithecus sediba fossils at this site called Malapa, it turns out that we were finding other really cool fossils at Malapa. And I was on the team that was describing all of the carnivore material. And one of the carnivore specimens was new to science. And so we described that, and that is the ancestor of the Cape fox. And that one is um, is Volpe's uh, Skinneri. Um, is what we named it. So we named so both not the species. Heartstone Rosica. Uh, no, none of them. I have no species <laughs> named after me. Nowadays, it's considered uncouth to name something after yourself. I'm sure you can get away with naming it for your advisor. In our case, we named the fox after one of the great um, uh, uh, African mammologists that had recently passed away, um, Skinner. And uh, like Aon Sokoei, so the African hunting dog ancestor, we named after. Um, one of the Africans who um, helped us with those excavations, and he also passed away. Mm -hmm. um, and he was a, a wonderful friend of mine, and he was actually uh, one of the first people to really teach me how to excavate. Um, and he was one of the people who helped excavate the skeleton, and unfortunately he died before we could describe it, but we named it in his honor. Oh, that's great. Well, hopefully you'll have 
many more opportunities to to do that. Yeah, I mean, I like describing the specimens, but I'm much more interested in studying how it is that they work. Sure. We've dis- we've studied um fossil carnivores quite a bit and I've taken students to South Africa with me to do a lot of that. And we've also done um a lot of really exciting work at the La Brea tar pits here in the United States. Well, that was my next question for you. Tell us about that work. The tar pits if you are interested in carnivores, just like if you're interested in lemurs, then you should come to Duke. If you're interested in fossil carnivores, then the La Brea tar pits are the place to be. Um, for those of you who don't know the wh- what the La Brea tar pits are, they're, they're, they are a fossil locality right in the middle of Los Angeles, which is crazy. So most of the time we have to go on essentially an expedition to find fossils. In fact, this is this is a locality that is in a park. And the reason that they preserve the park is because they can't really build on it because tar keeps seeping out of the ground. Um, and so it's right off of Wilkshire Boulevard. And it is a locality where um, animals get trapped in this tar that's mm-hmm. still seeping. So for instance, even to this day, squirrels will run across the lawn and get trapped in the tar, and then people will have to come in and take them out. Wow. And what's amazing is that this has been going on for tens of thousands of years right there, and um, including prior to the last big extinction event. And this, is, um, th- this tar seep um, is um, what is referred to as a carnivore trap. So what happens is an animal, like that squirrel, will get trapped there and then make a racket, and other animals will come around. So predatory birds, for instance, or um, something like a coyote might come around, and um, and then that animal gets trapped. And then eventually, the, the you know, after they... Um, they come apart, they'll sort of sink to the bottom, and, and this just happens layer upon layer. And back um, prior to about 10,000 years ago, the animals that lived around Los Angeles were huge mastodons and mammoths and giant sloths, and they had the two most iconic predators of, of Ice Age North America. So the American saber-toothed cat, Smilodon fatalis, mm-hmm. and the extinct wolf, uh, Canis dyrus. Um, and dire these, wolves. The dire wolves. Which we exactly. all know from Game of Thrones, of course. Exactly. <laughs> um, Game of Thrones, yeah. So everybody loves dire wolves in Game of Thrones. What's One of the things that I, I tell people about dire wolves is that they really weren't that big um they so there are some modern wolves that were bigger than dire wolves but um they were really impressive predators and they exist in the collections at the la brea tarpits museum by the thousand um so there are literally (laughs) thousands of saber-tooth um cats and thousands of dire wolves there um and if you're interested in studying functional morphology this is really one of the only fossil localities where you can get um, an amazing sample size, so a statistical sample of to try to say what is a Smilodon fatalis. I can study a hundred Smilodon skulls and tell you about the diversity of their shape, their form and shape. For instance, like an Sequoiae, we only know of maybe two individuals of that entire species. And Vulpes skinneri, we only know one individual of that species. And wow. so we can mm-hmm. say a lot about 
what that individual might have been capable of. But if you want to study the diversity of an extinct species, then a locality like La Brea is really amazing. Well, it sounds like a fun place to go visit. It's really fun. It's kind Even of expensive. As a person. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a wonderful place to visit. It's kind of expensive to do research there because you have to stay in Los Angeles hotels. The food <laughs> right. is good though. Um, but yeah, the museum is wonderful. They're going to expand it and build a, a whole modern place. But it's got this a beautiful historic collection. They have mounted skeletons of like the giant short faced bear, and they also have the original fishbowl lab so um a lab where the little kids can kind of press their face up against the window and see the science at work um and so it's a really fun place to work absolutely well adam we can't let you go without discussing your extraordinary passion about the study of anatomy where where did that come from and uh, how are you uh working to pass that along to the next generation yeah, I have um I, my story like I am the luckiest person that I know. Um and I have uh been on this journey for many many years. Um in fact, I became a, a scientist. I trace my scientific roots back to when I was 17 days old. Um and that was when I made my first trip to the American Museum of Natural History. I grew up in New York City. And you remember it like it was yesterday, right? I don't remember a lick of it, but <laughs> but um and I like to think that my father took me there you know, to make me into a biologist, but I think that the, the truth is that I was one of those babies that would cry unless I was being carried around. And he got sick of walking around our New York City apartment, and he figured a museum is a good place to walk around. Mm-hmm. And I basically went there. <laughs> Something took. Yeah, I w- and, and I went there essentially every weekend of my childhood, um, eventually with my little brother as well. And the three of us would, walk, would go around the museum, and I was mesmerized by the world by by nature um and especially um the wildlife i was mesmerized by the um the exhibits that were there that had the the dioramas of all these amazing animals and um and eventually when i was about 6 years old um i actually discovered another amazing place so the way that that story goes is my cousin was in town and we took her to the museum and so she was a little bit older but maybe like 8 years old and she um she wasn't as amazed with the museum as we were and after the museum her mother um decided that we needed to buy shoes uh for for my cousin and this this was a, a horrible thing for the men of my family. We, we were not really interested in shopping, and we wanted to walk home through Central Park. And instead, we had to walk on one of the commercial boulevards. And this was really fortuitous because about a block north of the museum was an amazing store called Maxilla and Mandible. And this was a store that sold taxidermy mounts and skulls and cultural artifacts and shells and minerals and I had no idea that such a place existed and um, while my cousin was in the shoe store next door we snuck off and we snuck into Maxilla and Mandible and that was the day that I negotiated my first allowance and uh, <laughs> and I started a small collection and in fact I still have the specimens that I bought that day wow. on my shelf in my office um, That's and very cool. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. And I started, uh, and and I would go there every weekend after after um, the museum. And by the time I was ten years old, my father and brother had grown sick of watching me look at all the specimens there. And so the manager of the store handed me a broom, and he told me that 
he would put me in a taxi when I was done. And, um, and so I started sweeping the floors and cleaning the shelves. And eventually I learned how to put teeth in skulls and then how to use the beetle colony to prepare specimens. And, um, by the time I was 12, I was selling specimens. Um, and then, uh, he, I was introduced there to a bunch of people from the museum as well. And when I had kind of learned everything that um, I, I needed to learn at Maxillin Mandible, I started working at the museum itself in the mammalogy department and then anthropology. And that's when I started really honing my um, interest in primates. And that's what led me to Madagascar. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so your your passion now extends to your, your teaching pursuits, yeah. right? Tell us a little bit about that briefly. Briefly. So <laughs> I am, as I said, I'm the luckiest person I know. I've, I've lived like a really charmed life. And the way that I kind of pay that forward is in my passion for mentoring students. Um, I have taught dozens of students. I've taken scores of students to Madagascar and South Africa. And we've collected data in Spain and France, all over the United States at the Smithsonian, the American Museum of Natural History and the tar pits in, in Los Angeles. Um, and, uh, and I really, I pride myself on trying to create um, life-changing experiences for my students. And at any given time, we have over two dozen students that work in my lab. And some of them are going to become scientists um, someday and might stay on with me for graduate school. Others of them are going off to medical school or veterinary school. Um, and it's just, it's really a fulfilling life. Absolutely. Well, Adam, it's been a fascinating conversation, so thank you very much for being my guest on Radio and Vivo today, and best best of luck in making more important discoveries and contributions to your field. I've enjoyed myself greatly. And we've got some great guests lined up in the coming weeks here on Radio and Vivo. You can check the website, radioandvivo.net, or our Facebook site for the lineup of upcoming shows. Join us again next time for Radio in Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community right here on volunteer-powered WCOM-FM, Carborough and Chapel Hill. And if you enjoy this show, we ask that you support the station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and making a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. Thank you for listening, and we will catch you next time.